Well, if you have your Bibles, turn back to Proverbs chapter 29 as you're turning. I talked to Gail this week, and uh, she wanted me to personally thank all of you for all the prayers, and I know some of you have went over there and spent time with her and encouraged her and been there for her, and she's headed down the final phase of this, you know, and we just need to get through all of that, but she wanted me to personally tell you and thank you for everything that you have done and all the prayers and everything, so we uh, appreciate that and wish her Godspeed as she gets back here as quickly uh, as she can, her and Footsie. Now, last week, we looked at one of the most incredible passages uh, in all of the Bible that really will force us to, to, to look inside ourselves. You know, I've given you the little outline before. It's a great little, it's a great sermon if you want to develop it, but it's also a great little, um, you know, if you're going to do a devotion with something. And it talked about, you know, the three things that God's people should always do. And I've, I've given it to you for years, you know. Look behind, look around, and then look ahead. And, you know, after last week's message, you know, and really all the way through the book of Proverbs chapter 29, you know, I've kind of added a fourth one to it. And that would be to look behind, look around, look ahead, and then look inside. And uh, that's really uh, what last week was about. It was what I would call a, a looking glass message out of James chapter 1, verse 24, where it talks about the fact that we look into the perfect law of liberty as the Word of God as a looking glass and see what manner of person we really are. You know, every once in a while, uh, we need a reality check message, all of us, uh, that may not, uh, we may not all like, but we certainly all do need. And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago in Habakkuk chapter 2, as we were looking at the vision, one of the aspects of the vision was that God was going to, uh, you know, he was going to, uh, he wanted to see how that you and I react once we are reproved. What we are told that we need to change some things, he wanted us to see, he wanted to see how we responded to that. And I, and I do, I appreciate so much your response, you know, the texts, the calls, and you know, the kind words last week that... Uh, you know, that everybody appreciated what, uh, you know, that the Lord did through that message. And uh, I know that we all needed it from time to time. And there comes a time when you need preaching all the time. But there comes a time when you just need to clear off a spot and, and uh, you know, and, and lay things out. And that, you know, that's a, that is a, uh, <clears throat> that was a great passage and a great verse. Unfortunately, we're facing another one today. <clears throat> so, so bear with me on it. You know, it's a thing where, uh, you know, I've said it for almost 50 years uh, in the ministry that uh, the ministry is people. It's, it's taking care of each other. And uh, I, I have preached all of my life about investments as God's people. book of Proverbs is about a wise man and a foolish man. The wise man makes good investments. The foolish man makes bad investments. But I've told you over for all those years, you know, that here you know, investing everything we have in the two eternal things for all of eternity. One of them is obviously the Word of God, and the other one is the souls of men. Those are the only two things that will last through all eternity. And very frankly, and I'm not saying you shouldn't have fun, I'm not saying you shouldn't do things, shouldn't have things, shouldn't go places, and shouldn't have time, and have a great time. Certainly you should. But the main focus for all of us always needs to be those two eternal things that we need to stay focused on and invest in. The Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, and the, and the souls of men. You know, allowing through plain preaching uh, of God's Word to, one, change us first, and then we have the ability to change others. And, uh, it, you know, it's always been amazing to me. I've been a Baptist all of my life, 
It's always been amazing to me. Uh, you know, Baptists love to talk about how we love plain preaching uh, until it becomes plain to us that uh, there's some things we need to work on and we don't like it anymore. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 7 is a familiar verse around here, certainly no new revelation to anybody. It says, The full soul loatheth the honeycomb, but to the hungry soul even the bitter things are sweet. You know what? That's really the acid test for our relationship with Christ and the Word of God, how we take the bitter things. Everybody can be happy about the great things that we hear in sermons. It's the things that impact us, the things that force us to look on the inside. And last week, you'll remember, I gave you seven key areas that you can see uh, as we get older uh, really need to be developed and need to be a, a processing of our lives that it is the end product of our love for God and really developing a relationship uh, as His Son or, or just becoming a hired servant that does everything because of obligation. You know, in life, and this is so true, in life, everything gets better with age. It, it, most things, anyhow, almost all things. You take, you take movies. You know, the movies that were made back in the 30s, you take movies like The Wizard of Oz. I mean, it was made back in 1932, I think, and it still uh, holds, it's a classic today. I mean, it is. I mean, uh, it's one of those things that'll just, the older the time goes, the more classical it becomes. I think of, you know, back in the 50s, uh, Cecil B. DeMille's took Charlton Heston and made The Ten Commandments. I mean, I, I, think it's, I think it's one of the greatest, uh, and they've tried to make a remake of that, but it just falls flat. I mean, there's a difference between today when you computer-generate 30,000 people into a scene than when you actually had 30,000 extras. And it just it brings the thing to life. It just really does. And, I, you know, it's a thing where uh, Gone with the Wind is another one. I mean, uh, there's talk of here from time to time about having a ladies' night and watching Gone with the Wind. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where, uh, uh, another one, you're going to laugh at this one, The Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. <laughs> Most people don't even know that. That came out in 1968. I think it had a total budget of $1.98. <laughs> it, was, it was one of the, uh, and it's a cult classic. It's absolutely, they made two or three remakes of that. They'll never beat it, man. I mean, it is, it's the goofiest thing you ever saw in your life, but people just, it's incredible. It really is. I mean, uh, how about King Kong? I made a little mark about the bobblehead a little while ago. King Kong was made in 1933. Faye Ray died a couple of years ago. She was the heroine in there. She fell in love with King Kong, and he fell in love with her. Beauty and the Beast, you know how that goes. They have made at least five remakes of King Kong. Nothing will touch the 1933 one. And back then, uh, most people don't know this. Back then, they didn't have the special effects like, like they've got today. Um, you know, when, when King Kong moved, they had to do it one frame at a time, moving one inch at a time, and then putting 10,000 frames together for just to him to move 20 feet. It was incredible. And, you know, it's a classic. Music's the same way. I mean, uh, you know, you look at the classical stuff with Beethoven and Chopin and, and all those guys. Uh, you know, it's, it's the older stuff. And how about in my era, the 50s, the Beach Boys? Elvis Presley, the Beatles. Most of you guys don't even know who the Beach Boys was, is, were. <laughs> but it's true of music. Painting's the same way. 
I, you know, I was laughing, you know, thinking about this, and I thought, I'll have to throw this in. You know, and 20, 20, 30 years ago, uh, I was in Holland, in Amsterdam. I went through the museum there, and uh, Rembrandt was a Dutch painter in the 1600s. And he painted, his most famous painting is called Night Watch. I don't know if you ever saw it or not. You can look it up, Google it up, it'll come up. And on the, on, on the, uh, in the painting, he's got all these guys who uh, were the night watchmen that guarded the city. And they, 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 he, he painted the portrait of them. And, you know, there's 20, 30 guys in it. And all this stuff is, is symbolism. You have a woman with a chicken, that symbolized something. You had a little girl there, that symbolized something. And it is an absolute multi-billion dollar masterpiece today. But if you know the truth, when Rembrandt painted that, he painted it for a bunch of drunken soldiers of the Miguel who wanted to hang it up in their bar where they drank. It was just like going to some place and see the Chiefs team up on the wall in a picture. But over the years, <laughs> over the or Alex standing there wearing that goofy hat. But over the years, things become become classic. I I mean, they just get better with age. I mean, it's true of automobiles. Talk to Gary Potter back there. And uh, somebody asked me the other day, do you, ha- do you ever seen Harry Potter? And I said, I don't need to. I got Gary Potter. That's all I need. <laughs> but it's a thing where, you know, talk to Gary about cars. You know, he buys all these old cars. A while back he got, I think it was a 55 Cadillac. I mean, absolutely brand new mint condition. I, I mean, the cars that were, you know, and somebody talks about the old cars versus the new cars. Like the new cars don't rush. No, that's because they're all made of plastic. And it's a thing where, you know, I, when I was a kid growing up and I was a teenager, a little older than a teenager in my 19 and 20s, my, my first hot rod was a 64 GTO. And then my next hot rod was a 67 GTO. And then, you know, and then after that, I got a Z28 Camaro. And you know, back then, I mean, you know, it, those cars are classic today. You take a GTO from the 60s or the 70s or a, a Chevelle, Chevy Chevelle, 6970, you know. Man, you, they were $2,500 brand new back there. They're $60,000, dollars now. Because with time, things get more valuable. Things get better. You, you talk to Steve in the gun world. I mean, the old Smith & Wessons that you made back in the 60s that you could buy for $100, they're $900,000, $1,200. A Colt Python back in the old days cost about $220. It's probably $1,800 now for the same gun. Your house, if you've lived in it for a while, your house now is worth a lot more than it was when you bought it, unless you live in Raytown like me, and then it's worth less. <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it's true. Thanks, Obama. Huh? Yeah, yeah, thanks a lot. I mean, uh, they just raised our property taxes in Jackson County, and my house this year went up to be worth a million dollars. Are you kidding me? I get these, uh, maybe you get them too. I get this phone call of this, I don't think they're really Americans. They're having an ethnic talk, and they want to buy your house. You get those too? They'll call me up, and they say, this is how it goes. Is Robert Alexander there? And I said, yes, he is. Um, I can speak his language. And he says, do you live at 8308 Woodson Drive? And I said, yes, I do. Would you be interested in selling that, that house? I said, absolutely. One million dollars. 
bring the money over this afternoon in small bills, and we'll make a deal. Everything gets better. I mean, I ain't kidding you. Even booze. I saw on the Internet the other day where an 1890 bottle of bourbon sold for $6,000. Now, that's incredible. But it's just like, you know, and when you, it's amazing. In time, everything in the world gets better except God's people. We just get worse. We become more miserable. We become more unhappy. <clears throat> and yet the Bible says the older we get, the more better we should be in every aspect of our life. We should be, you know, we should be, you know, and I, I see, you know, people who get saved. And some of you come up here, and one of the things I like about it is you, you know, you get, you come up here. This is my spiritual birthday. I was saved 20 years ago, 13 years ago. And yet to you, maybe out there, it's no big, to me, I see how you have gotten better. And that's why I do it. Proverbs 20, verse 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, and the beauty of old men is their gray head. The older you get, the more valuable you should become. Proverbs 16, 31, The hoary head, hoary is white, like the hoarfrost. The hoary head is a crown of glory, if it be found in the way of righteousness. Simply put, the older we get, the better we should get the more valuable we should become. <clears throat> now, let me show you another little analogy here. I, we're blessed in this church. We have some great cooks. We really do, men and women. They, I mean, we just have some really great cooks. I mean, if I'm not much for deer meat cooked on a steak. Steve Brackeen can take a deer steak, and you think you're sitting at Ruth Chris's deer house, steakhouse. I mean, it's incredible what some of these guys can do. I mean, it really is. You want spaghetti? Lorinda Gregg. Best spaghetti on the planet. I mean, I ain't telling you. I'm telling you. I just, you know, I, you know, Mexican food? Phil Christie. I mean, you ever had Phil Christie's Mexican food? I mean, it's absolutely, I mean, ole. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Lasagna, come over to my house. Barb makes the best lasagna in the world. It's good stuff. I mean, it's just, a, and, 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 and you want a good bowl of chili? Norbert. Norbert makes all his chili for our, for our, um, our Halloween deal, you know, and he'll make it hot, he'll make it medium hot, he'll make it not so hot, or you'll just have an empty thing there with nothing in it. It doesn't matter. But it's incredible stuff. I always eat some and then take a big thing home. But I want to tell you something. Christians are like a good bowl of chili. Because if you really want chili to get good, let it sit for two or three days. Let it develop. I mean, put all the ingredients together and let it just, you know, just sit for a day or two. Or put it on the pot, you know, and simmer it on the, on the fire, you know, take a thing and stir it. And that's what God does with us. God makes us like Norbert makes a good bowl of chili. He puts all the ingredients in, and then through life, he wants to stir you a little bit. Through life, he wants to, he wants to turn up the heat a little bit, bring you maybe to a boil, and then and he wants you to simmer. And then in time, when he's done with you, we walk out. Man, I'll tell you what, it's, it's, it's worth waiting for. And God takes some time in life to develop us. 
He doesn't just do it the moment you get saved. He'll put you on the back burner for a little while and turn up the heat. He'll let me add some ingredients to it over the years. He'll give you some things. He'll put all the components together, but at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're something special, and it's, uh, you, you're, you're ready now to really be used of God. You know, and, and people will see it, and they'll, and they'll seek, out, seek you out. This is what I've been trying to get across the last couple of weeks, that people in, in our church, you know, I don't think I've given somebody to work with to somebody for the last couple of years. You know why? People ask for you by name. They watch you. They see what you do. They, they see uh, how you in, invest yourself with people. Somebody will get saved, and, you know, I'll talk to them, and they'll say, I'll say, would you like to be a disciple? Yeah, can, can so-and-so do it? I've watched him, and, you know, i really like to have him do it. Absolutely. It's a thing where you, 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 God builds you, and the people see, they seek it out because they see that you understand the Word of God, but you have the joy in their life, and that's what they really want. And it's a thing where, you know, I watch you guys. I really do. I mean, somebody new comes in, and, and you're all over them. <clears throat> I mean, uh, they, you invite them to this, you invite them to that. When we had the crafts things the other day, some of you invited your neighbors, some of you invited uh, people down. I mean, Steph's mom came all the way down from wherever you're at. Where are you at? Iowa. Iowa. And it's a thing where, I mean, I guarantee there is another church in this city that people travel from Iowa to come to a craft show. I promise you. But it's the point where you have a tremendous opportunity. And people, people come and they see the difference. They see what you have. And you can use anything. We use volleyball and softball. But you know what? You come up to be a leader. Instead of fighting about the umps and the refs and everything that you don't like, you just show them what is different about you. And you can do it even in a little crafts thing. You can do it in every aspect. And, and people see that. And I watch you work the crowds. I watch when we have something over at Jamie's house or we do something and there's somebody new there. You're, you're talking to them. You're, you're investing in them. You're letting them know you're the first one there and the last one to leave versus the last one there and the first one to leave. You spend time with them. You talk to them. You encourage them. You find out about them. And you don't do it just because, you're, because that's what you're supposed to do. You really care about people. And when you care about people, people know you care about them. And it's just the way it has to work. You know, it's a thing where, talking about pastors for a moment, most pastors today, <clears throat> they get to the point in their life when they're 60, 65 years old, you know, and um, they, they think they have done what God has called them to do, and so now it's time to turn their church over to a younger guy, you know, and then they retire. Let me translate that for you. I have no idea what I'm doing, so I'm tired and frustrated, so I'll turn it over to a young guy who really doesn't know what he's doing, and then I'll minister to the golf course and pretend I did a really good job for the Lord. And I want to tell you something. Based on the Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8 says, there is no discharge from this war. The ministry is unlike any other vocation you ever take because there is no retiring. There's only a refiring. You don't get to the point where you're done. In fact, when most guys are ready to quit at 65 or 70, that's when a child of God or a Christian really comes into their prime from the Bible standpoint. Now you have all the experience that you've learned through all the mistakes that you've made, 
all the things that God has showed you, and it's a thing now where you, from what you've learned, you have the ability to add the wisdom in the years to what you now know that as a young guy you may have known the Bible but you didn't have the experience and now you can take that and spend the rest of your life giving that to, to younger men and women. Oh, you can't play volleyball anymore. You can't play softball anymore. You can't get to the point where you can do all the things you used to do. But that's just part of life. Men and women who can who I can send other young men and women to that you've been through some things that they're going through that I know that you can help them. And you give me a, you give me a church that's got, you know, 30 or 40 older men and women who have learned some things in their life and now they're in their years of, you know, 50, 60, 70. Uh, you know, you, know you, 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 can, you got something because now you can mentor the younger ones. You can bring them along. When they're struggling with something, you went through it 20 years ago. Now, we have a predominantly young church, and unfortunately, when I'm talking about the 70-year-olds, I'm talking about myself or your dad. <clears throat> so I kind of point the fingers, but uh, I'm probably the oldest guy here this morning other than my buddy back here. And how old are you, Marty? 77. Wow, Marty's been around for a long time, and he's, he knows his Bible, and he's a good guy, and I appreciate him being here. And you got me beat, Marty. I'm not quite 70 yet, but uh, just slow down a little bit, and I'll catch up to you here in just a little bit. But it's a thing where, you know, I know we have a young church, and I know, and that's a good thing, but let me just say something to you here. Learn this lesson, kids. All my life and all my ministry and all the churches and the people that I have been associated with. And that's been hundreds and hundreds of people. I've seen men and women who could have been a great value to God when they got older in their glory years. But because of the bad choices and the bad investments they made when they were your age, they're sitting on the sidelines now. They're, they're, they're on the sidelines of ministry. They're, they're out of this race. And I, I, I tell you, don't let that happen to you. Come to the place where you really, really understand the value of getting better as you get older. Give it all that you got as long as God gives you the breath to put it out. And when you get older and you can't do it all like you used to be able to do, I get it. It just comes with the time. Use your own children and your own family first that you're training up right now and then look to the scores and the scores of other people that you've invested your life in that you're still connected to and all those young ones that you're dealing with and helping solidify in their life. Let them do it for you. But it all starts with family ministering teams together. That'll be the key. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 6 says, Children's children are the crown of old men. And that is true physically, but it's all true, true spiritually. In doing the Lord's work, use every angle. Squeeze every drop out of everything that you can do for the Lord. Every aspect, every commodity, every resource that God has given you or better yet has entrusted you with. Use it now to pay off later as you get older, but you get better, you can better be used in a greater way. And then last week I, I left you with an illustration on the, uh, you know, the interview that I saw with, uh, with uh, Patrick Mahomes and, 
and when they asked him about, uh, you know, how he felt like where he is at, and he, he took all the credit and gave it to Alex Smith. And we talked about how that there's a guy, Alex Smith, who, who never won a Super Bowl, but invested, and, and here was a kid that was going to replace him, and yet he, he thought more of the team and what needed to be done than he did himself, and he, he brought that kid to where he is and taught him. And, and then we all watched the game together. We had a great crowd here. It was an incredible time. And, uh, you know, what can I say? One more time, the kid found a way to come back and, and get the job done. And, you know, and you, you can't deny the fact that the kid has some great leadership skills, even at 24. The team rallies around him. You could see him walking up and down the sidelines and motivating them and encouraging them. I mean, on the second thing is his athletic ability with the football is, 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 is quite incredible. And I think the greatest thing that he has, which probably every quarterback needs, and there have been some great quarterbacks, he has the ability that when that ball snapped in an instant, to size up the field, size up the situation, know who's going where, and within two or three seconds get rid of that ball and, and make the contact. You know, and, you know, and I came away, I'm sorry, watching that and then thinking about it all week. I came away with another great analogy. Every Christian... Every Christian in this room ought to have a goal in their life. And I'm not saying you maybe you can be there right now. Some of you should be. But I'm saying that that'll be the goal to every child of God in time for you to do with a football, a Bible, what he does with a football. Be a leader. Be able to rally. To, you know what he does? He has the ability, what every Christian ought to have the ability to do. He takes what looks like a defeat and can turn it around through his leadership, through the use of the football, and through seeing the situation, he can turn it around to victory. That's what every Christian ought to be able to do with the Bible. You ought to see in an instant every circumstance the way it really is. You ought to use the biblical principles that we talk about in people ministry and all of these things, and in a second, you ought to be able to see and understand which way you're going to go. And you ought to have the ability to drop the bomb way down on the 10-yard line when nobody else can to get the job done. <clears throat> and then you need to know how to motivate people, <clears throat> how to be a leader. He says, this is right out of the Bible, <clears throat> He says, we win our games by one play at a time. And I'm telling you, the victory in the Christian life is one circumstance at a time, using the Bible to get the victory. You know, <clears throat> most people don't see this. I, <clears throat> I tell it to you all the time, how that everything in the world comes back to the Bible, even sports. I mean, you take baseball. I mean, uh, uh, Dr. Ruckman one time preached a message. I had the, actually had the picture of it. He called the game of life. And he had the Christian up the bat and the devil was the pitcher. And uh, what the devil wants to do is he wants to get you up the bat and then he wants to strike you out and throw you fastballs, curveballs, and everything else that you can't hit. And it's called the game of life. And I remember he preached it one time and he said, you know, in baseball you got a final authority just like you do in Christianity. It's the umpire. And it doesn't matter what you think, what the call was, what you think it was, the ultimate final authority tells you what it is. And all baseball, all sports go back to a fundamental concept. Football is the same way. Most people, when you watch a football game, you watch the Chiefs versus whoever. I watch the Reformation. Because all a football game is a picture to me of what the Reformation was under Martin Luther. You had the Catholic Church was the bad team. 
you had the Protestants that were the good team, and then you had the King James Bible that was the quarterback, and then you had the Bible-believing Christians that were the tailbacks and the guys that run the ball. And what happened was in the Reformation was simply this. Everybody thinks the Protestant Reformation changed the world. The Protestant Reformation only changed the world not because the Protestants did anything. It's because it blocked the Catholic Church. That the, you ever watch a football thing where the guy coaches up there, he's got X's and O's. The O's are the bad team and the X's are this. And then he draws where it all goes. And it's, that, that's, what, that's, what the Bible, that's what the Reformation was. The O's were the Catholic Church. The X's were the Reformers. And they're lined up on the line just like that. When the ball, when God snapped the ball back to the Waldensians and the Baptists and the Algensians, the Protestants and the Catholics collided on the line. And they blocked it. And you know what the Holy Spirit of God did? He snapped that ball. The old Baptists ran a corner. He flea flickered it out. And while the Protestants and the Catholics were on the line, the King James Bible ran to the ends of the earth. Every time I watch a football game, I just watch the Reformation. Because that's how it worked. And it's a thing where, you know, every child of God, you ought to get better as you get older. You ought to be able to use the Bible, your leadership, your skills, just like that kid can do it in a game. You ought to be able to do it in a game of life. Now, today, we're going to look at just one verse today, but it will be another blockbuster verse Verses like this, I think, need special attention. For it deals with, again, the uh, missing element in Christianity today, and I keep saying that because there's a lot of missing elements to it. And yet, it's one of my favorite subjects to preach on. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12, you have a great story. And it's a story of Joab and his second-in-command, Abishiah, and they're faced with two opposing armies. Joab pulls him aside, and he, they're greatly overwhelmed. And Joab pulls him aside and says, now here's what we're going to do. You take your guys, they're, they're in front of us, and they're in back of us. You take your guys, and you hit the back guys. I'm going to take my guys, and I'm going to hit the front. Now, if you get overwhelmed, you call me, and I'll break off and come and help you. If I get overwhelmed, you break off and come and help me. And then he looked him right in the eye in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12. Wow, one of my favorite verses. He said to Abishiah, be of good courage. Play the man. Play the man for our God and our people and our city. And that's what God's people need to do today. They need to play the man. That verse is a powerful verse in church history. On October 16th in 1555, there was a British pastor by the name of Hugh Latimer. And with him was a young uh, a convert by the name of uh, uh, Nicholas Ridley. And in, 16, in 1500, Bloody Mary was on the throne in England and she was killing everybody because she was Roman Catholic. She was killing everybody, hence the name Bloody Mary. And she had Hugh Latimer and Ridley burned at the stake. And the story goes that as they put him on there and lit the fire, the fire began to engulf both of them, but it was burning Ridley only on the bottom, and he was in great pain and great suffering and great agony. And Lou Latimer looked over to him in the midst of that fire, and he was dying himself, and he said these words, Play the man, Master Ridley. 
We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England and I trust shall never be put out around the world. And four years later, Bloody Mary's out, Elizabeth is in, here comes the King James Bible under James I and the light goes on. You never know, and I'm going to preach to you on courage this morning, you never know when God will take a moment of courage and through it change somebody's future. Now let's look at our text today, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. And when I'm done reading this, Randy Miller, good to have you down from wherever you're from. Would you stand up and ask God's blessing? You're from Iowa. No, Minnesota. Is it cold up there? A lot of snow? Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question then. How do you have a lot of snow if it ain't cold? <laughs> no, here we go. Let's read the verse and you stand up and pray for us, okay? <laughs> the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be saved. Brother? Amen. Now, verse 25 is one of the truest principles of the Christian life that you'll ever find or you'll ever study. And nothing will impact Christianity uh, in a negative way more than the fear of man. And the Bible says that it's a snare to us. And yet the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, that there is no fear uh, in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. And then he says, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. That's a great verse to go along with it today. Yet God's people are today are afraid of everything. They're afraid what other people are going to think about them. They're afraid what other people are going to say about them. They always want to have, they always want to keep an alliance with people that may be completely off the line in the Bible because they don't want to, they don't want to cause a problem. They don't want to, so they'll keep those alliances, they'll keep those friendships when in actuality, you know, it's a thing where you, you need to dump those things. But they can't. When our kids are in junior high or high school, we call it peer pressure. Kids who are afraid of other kids and just uh, go along with the crowd instead of taking a stand. You see, that fear is a snare to them. It snares them. I've seen God's people, you know, in a restaurant, eat a meal and, and never bother to thank God for it and ask the blessing for it. You know why? They're afraid. They're afraid when other people around them, oh, there's a Christian over there. And they're afraid of those things. I've seen dads lose their whole families because they were afraid to lead them spiritually. I've seen husbands lose their marriage because they were failed to be the spiritual leader. They were afraid to. I've seen mom lose their kids because of a deadbeat husband spiritually. And they, they, and, 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 and they have the opportunity to, to change that. Let me tell you something. If you're a wife in a bad marriage situation and you got a deadbeat for a husband and isn't a spiritual, you have all the cards in your hands. You have the winning hand. You can do more to turn that thing around than anybody else. You know why you won't? Because you're afraid. I've seen it. I've seen the pastors afraid to preach hard messages or deal with issues because they were afraid of the people, the repercussions that would come. <clears throat> you know, well, I may make somebody mad or I, you know, I may, I may you know, somebody, may, they may leave the church over a message that I preach. You know, the greatest, 
The greatest passage in the Bible for anybody who's going to be a preacher is found back way back in the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 1. And I have it down there, God's call to me as God's preacher. And in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 1, you see God's calling to him, just like he'll call you. And then you see in verse 6, his response to it. Jeremiah says, oh, I can't do that. Uh, He's got the Moses syndrome. Oh, I can't do that. I'm just like a child. And in verse 7, 8, 9, God says, you can do it because I'm going to put my words in your mouth and I'm going to touch your mouth and I'm going to send you out and I'm going to tell you right now, don't be afraid of their faces when you have my words in your mouth. Then he says in verse 10, now you go to work. You root out, you pull down, you destroy, you throw down. And if you want to put that into a New Testament concept, root out, root out bitterness. Pull down strongholds in our lives. Destroy the flesh. Throw down imagination. They're all defined in the New Testament. And then, after you do that, then, but those things aren't popular, but after you do that, then you can build and plant. The problem is that most pastors today, they want to try to build and plant before they root out anything, before they destroy anything. And today, God's people are afraid of everything except what they should be afraid of, showing up at the judgment seat of Christ empty-handed. And I don't necessarily want to preach to you today on on so much of the fear of man. I can accomplish what I want to accomplish just by preaching on one word, that's courage. Being courageous for God versus being a coward for God. The snare that entraps us all. Now, as far as I'm concerned, and again, this is not only a great message, but it's also a great, a great devotion if you ever want to use it, uh, is on, the greatest passage on courage is found in Joshua chapter 1. Uh, it's a great lesson for any nation, and it's a great lesson for any Christian. It's when Israel's crossing over Jordan and going into the land. And they're in a land now that is filled with the enemy. The devil has had 400, 500 years. While they were down in Egypt, the devil has fortified the promised land to keep them out. It's a picture of life. While you and I were yet unsaved, the devil was fortifying this world that once you got saved, he wanted to keep you out of the blessings of God. And the land represents God's blessings. And he tells them three times in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 9 that they got to have three types of courage. And in verse 6, he says, you got to have courage to believe the Word of God because in the world that we live in, it's hard to believe it. Then he says in verse 7, you got to have courage to obey the Word of God. That's even harder. Then he says in verse 9, you got to have courage to rest in the Word of God. That's the hardest of all three. But it takes courage, and if you're ever going to be the courageous young man or young lady, the mom or dad that God wants you to be, it's going to take courage in three areas. You're going to have to have courage in a world that doesn't want to believe the book, that the book stands what it says. You're going to have to have courage that's even, that in the world, you're going to have to discipline yourself to obey it. And then through your relationship, you're going to have to come to the place where you rest in it. Years ago, I'm talking 30, 35 years ago, I had a young man in my, in my I was a, a singles pastor back then. I was teaching the college and career class. 
And I had a young man in my, in my group, some of you real older people may mem- remember him. His name was Jim Coffey. Uh, Jim Coffey was a nice kid. He was a good guy. I don't remember what happened to Jim. I, I know he married one of our gals there, and I know they got a divorce later, and I, I heard he had moved to Florida. I've lost track of him 30, 35 years ago. But way back in the day, Jim, Jim was in the binding business, books. And, you know, I, I had the foresight to look ahead to know that if I was going to work in my Bible for the next 30, 40 years, I was a young guy back then, that I was going to have to, this Bible wasn't going to make it. But what I had, I had an Oxford wide margin that I had today from way back in the day. And, I, and I, it was wearing out. I had put, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours in it. So I bought me two, you couldn't get them now, but back in the day you could. I bought me two Oxford wide margin Bibles. And I took them to Jim. And I said, Jim, I don't care what it costs. I don't care what it takes. Ironclad, bulletproof these Bibles. I want you to take them apart. I want you to re-glue them, rebind them. I want the best leather on them. I want them to endure uh, for a thousand years if Jesus doesn't come. And he took two of those Bibles for me, and he did that. For years and years and years, I, 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 one became uh, my study Bible about 17, 18 years ago. I had to transfer all of my notes in. And so I used that one for that, and that's the one I'll use on Thursday night Bible study. And then the second one became my preaching Bible. And I brought it today, and this is it right here. And uh, it's all battle-scarred and tore up. Uh, it's had over 35-some years of preaching. I preached, uh, it's got over 100 sermons in it. I was looking at all the illustrations I had in it this morning. Uh, I don't much use it anymore because I preach here. And, uh, you know, the other one I use on Thursday night. But uh, this became my preaching Bible. And uh, I, I, I preached this Bible all over the world for 30 years. I was in some of the Bible conferences, revivals, I mean, uh, mission trips. I mean, uh, this thing's been in a thousand battles, and it looks it. It's all scarred up, beat up, and just, and just but it's still intact 100%. And I did that because as a young man, I didn't want to be a coward for God. I really didn't. Uh, cowardness and has always been a thing that I just can't, I can't deal with. Uh, I just, I, I, I don't present myself as any hero in any shape or form, but at the same time, I just can't stand being a coward. I don't care. You may get your rear end whipped up one side and down the other, but that's okay. Let him go home and know that he got a, you got a piece of him. You just, you got to stand up for something in your life. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to let the fear of man change me or, or my preaching. And I want to tell you, they tried to. I mean, years ago, I mean, there was a music director by the name of Bob, jo- Bob Johnson, and I was getting ready to come to Kansas City, and he hated the King James Bible, hated Mel Sabaka, hated everything about it. He's dead now. And uh, he finally got the King James Bible figured out. But anyway, I was, you know, he pulled me aside when he knew I was coming out there, and he told me, he says, you're never going to be successful going out to Kansas City, working with the people you're going to be working with in this big church out here, you'll never be successful where you make it preaching the way you preach. And he says, you're not going to get results doing that. And he went on and on and on and on. At the end, I said, well, I appreciate what you said. And I did. I I took it with a grain of salt. But at the same time, I said, that's the difference between me and you, Bob. You're interested in results. I'm interested in truth. 
And that's where it lies for me. When I got out to Kansas City, there was the elite crowd who were the Calvary Bible College, which is the cesspool out here on, uh, in Grandview. Calvary Bible College was the absolute uh, armpit of the world. Uh, I would use another analogy part, but I won't do that with all the kids here today. But it was an absolute mess. It's worse today. And these guys, it was this guy. I had a Sunday school class back then. I was running about four or 500 in it this great Bible scholar who was the expert of the world in the book of Daniel. He had 12 in his Sunday school class. And uh, he came up to me one day and he says, Bobby says, uh, if I could give you some advice, I'd like to help you. And I'd say, well, that's great. I'd, I'd like some help. And he said, you know what? Why don't you go to Bible, Calvary Bible College? Why don't you pick up and get a degree there? They can help you knock off some of the rough edges and really get you in a presentable fashion. And I said, well, I, I said, I, I really appreciate that. I said, so let me see. I get this straight. I go to enlist in Bible college out at Calvary, and you probably would go and help me do that. Oh, yes, I would. I'm going to take the classes, and you would actually pick the classes that would help me knock off the rough edges? Oh, yes, I would would. And then you would work with me and encourage me? Oh, absolutely. And I said, okay. I go to Calvary, I get the rough edges knocked off, and I listen to you, and then I can run 12 in my Sunday school class like yours. <laughs> Is that what you're telling me? He didn't appreciate that, nor did he, fa he fail to see the humor in it. Maybe there wasn't any humor in it, but there was a lot of truth in it. And I'm telling you, they've tried to change me all my life. So... I'm not going to sit here and stand here and tell you that I, I, you know, I wasn't afraid of those things because I was a young guy and I did. But see, I, I, I put myself in situations that I can't go back on. You know, when I got, and I went, before I got saved, I was working at the Hoover Company. And I was, you know, I was, uh, it was a factory to make vacuum cleaners. And I worked there for a little while before I went in the Army. And then when I even came back, I worked there for a while. And uh, before I got saved, you know, I was just like everybody else. You know, I was telling dirty jokes and laughing and doing all the things that they were doing. And then one night I went to a service and I got right with God. And I mean, I got right with God. And I knew me. I knew that if I didn't make a big splash in a big hole at work the next day, I'd just get sucked right back into it. So I, I got me a little Bibles. I got me a fistful of tracks. And the next day when I showed up on a Monday morning, I was passing out tracts. I stood at the gate as people were going in and giving out tracts. I, I witnessed to all my friends. I can't tell you over the years how many people I, I won to Christ. But I, I just knew that if I didn't make a big splash and blow myself into a situation that I could never go back, that I probably would. I used to drive fork truck, and there were those propane things, you know, and, uh, you know, that blows the hot air out the back. And I used to have to swing parts in, and, and, there were, and I'm a drone day working there, and I'm swinging in there, and all the line workers are here, and I'm stepping on the gas to raise and drop everything, and the hot air's coming out. And they're saying, that's so hot, that's so hot. I, I got a great idea. The next time, next morning, I put a little sign on the back of my fork truck. You think this is hot. Wait till you die and go to hell without Jesus Christ. My boss didn't let me leave it on more than a day or two. But well, when I swang around and they said, it's hot, it's hot, they saw the sign. You think this is hot, where do you die and go to hell without Christ? Great witnessing tool. But I, I, I knew me, and I knew that I didn't just make a splash and blow a hole in it, that it, 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 would, never, it would never change. So uh, years later, I, I got my Bible when Jim Coffey did it, 
There's a hero of mine in the Bible in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 14. And his name is Micaiah. And Micaiah went up against Ahab and Jezebel back in 1 Kings. And brother, if you wanted a husband and wife team to be afraid of, that was the crew. And I mean, they were the two most wicked people Israel ever had. And they were giving Micaiah a tough time. And in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 14, when they're at the moment that they're going to really blast him and after him because of what he's preaching, the greatest verse, my hero, 1 Kings 22, 14, and Micaiah saith, as the, Lord liveth un, as the Lord liveth what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. And I took that and put that right on the front of my Bible. It's all beat up now. You can hardly see it in gold letters. You know why? Because the last thing I wanted to see before I stepped into that pulpit to preach God's Word. You know why? Because the last thing when I saw people out there that didn't like what I was saying and didn't like what I was preaching, the last thing I want I did not want to be afraid of their faces, and the last thing I wanted to see before I stepped into that pulpit was that verse. And that verse served me well for many, many, many years. And I'll tell you, never let the fear of man stop what God has given you to do. Because it'll snare you. You know, I, I, I may be a lot of things, and my faults are many. And I, I you know, I, I don't claim to be in any way, shape, or form perfect in any fashion. I got all my issues, the same ones that you do. But I'll tell you one thing that I have never wanted to do or never done is ever was a coward when it came to the book and God and the per- truth needing to be put out. I'm telling you. And you know, and I say this, I know I don't have to defend the book. I get that. I didn't do it because I had to defend it. I did it because I needed to do it for me, for all that he's done for me. Now, please take what I'm about to say in, in the right spirit here. I, 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 I get it. I, when it comes to the ministry and God and the Bible, I'm nothing. I get it. I understand. I don't have any false illusions about myself. Never have. But having said that, let me just say this to you in sense of the context. You'd have to look a long time to find a pastor who would preach a message like I preached to you last week. Because they're afraid you're going to get mad. Or even this week. Any week. Because they're, 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 now I can get away with it here. I mean, I can because most of you are in the Proverbs 27-7 crowd that the bitter things are sweet to you. So I get it. But what? try that in the churches that I preached about last week. Try that with the good old boys. Try that with the deacons that are totally against everything that God's doing. Now, one time I preached, I preached a really hard message years and years ago. And it was on faithfulness. I still have the message in my Bible. I mean, I nailed it. And I didn't pull any punches. I put it right to them. The next week, a guy called me and he wanted to meet. He said, I'm upset when we sat down and talked. And let me just say, he was a good guy. He was not a bad guy. He had just gotten to the place where he had gotten his goofy stuff all screwed up with some things. But he was a really good guy. And he started up by saying, I just wanted to meet with you, and I wanted you to know that I was upset with what you preached last week. And I said, Jerry, why is that? He says, well, I felt like you were singling me out. And I said, well, Jerry, I was. You and everybody else in that service today, me included, if you would think that I would preach a hard message and not love you enough and I would exclude you when I'm preaching to everybody else, I said, I was. Just not the way you're thinking I was. I said, hey, Jerry, I said, did I use your name? No. 
Did I give out your address and say, I'm not telling you who it is, but his phone number is 816? Did I do that? No, no. I said, look, Jerry, if the Holy Spirit of God convicted you with something that I said, that's between you and him. How in the world do you make it you if it isn't you? I mean, if you're doing what's right and you're everything, you know what? Last week there was messages that I preached, and I'm sure everybody looked inside, but the majority of you, if not all of you, you said, you know what? That's exactly right. I'm sure glad I may have been there one time in my life, but I'm doing what I need to be doing now. I mean, you got to, if you take it in personally, why is that? Is that my fault? No, no. If God convicts you about it, I mean, what are you mad at me for, Jerry? And he was a good guy. He really was. And, you know, he just got off beam a little bit. And I told him, I'll say, okay, here's the deal. Here's last week's sermon. Show me one thing I said in that that was wrong or not right. Well, there wasn't anything, you know. It's just me. It's just, you know what? God used that message, and he got that thing squared away, and he was the best guy I had for the next five, ten years of my life. I mean, he, he, sometimes. And I said to him, I said, hey, you know, come on, Jerry. I love you enough to tell you the truth. I said, you know, one time Paul got in the same jam in the book of Galatians. And you know what he said to them? He said in Galatians 4, 16, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And he got it. And he got, he was the best guy I ever had after that. I mean, he, 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 sometimes, sometimes you just have to get mad before you can get right. I preached one time and a lady came up to me. Oh, I love this one. She was a, you could tell it wasn't in any, I was preaching at a church. I forget where it was, but anyway, you could tell she's one of these ones who, you know, uh, you know, she's one of these real pride, prideful ladies, real, you know, uh, she's like a lady one time that old Bob Jones Sr. was preaching, and before he preached, this lady got up, and just an old prude, you know, and she was speaking, and she said, gave her testimony, she said, touch not, taste not, and handle not. Bob Jones Sr. get up and preaches, thank you, sister, and it's easy to see you've never been touched, tasted, or handled. <laughs> Not this lady. <laughs> That's what she was. She was a prude, man. And she comes to me and she says, oh, I want you to know that I'm offended by what you preach today. And I said, okay. I said, first of all, Psalms 119, verse 165, great, great love that have they that love the word of God and nothing shall offend them. I said, now, what are you offended about? She had nothing to say. I mean, it's a thing where, you know, if the Bible's the Bible and truth's truth, take it. Take it. But as a preacher or whatever, now, I'm not saying you get up and you just make an idiot out of yourself. And, you know, I, 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 one time I told you this story before. I was up in, New York, uh, in Boston. I was preaching at a church up there. And... One of the guys in the church, he, he, he was a nice kid, but just as, I mean, just as goofy as could be. And he, 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 we're, he's taking me someplace, I even forget where we're going, and I'm riding in his car, and we're down in the middle of Boston on a Saturday night, and there's people all over the place. And he's got a PA system on his CB that's got a speaker under the hood. And he gets on there, and people in the red light are walking across the street, and it's just this nice-looking lady, well-dressed, you know, just walking wherever. And he says, God knows where you're going tonight, you hussy. Oh, no. Yeah. 
And then, and then this guy is walking across the street. And he says, God judging you. He knows where you're going tonight, sir. And he's laughing like he's really doing God's work. And he does that four or five times. And then he hands the mic to me and says, hey, have a try at it. And I said, no, I'm losing my voice. I got to keep it for preaching tomorrow. I wanted to sink down on that seat so far. I'm not talking about stupid stuff like that. I'm talking about staging, preaching the truth. You, obviously, you're sensitive to people. Obviously, you know, but I'm just telling you. Years ago, when I preached my first sermon, I preached to 600 people. I did. And uh, there was an old boy there whose name was Phil Ward. And Phil Ward was one of the guys that hang out with Tommy Thomas, who really was one who mentored, you know, uh, Mel Sabaka, who mentored me. And Phil Ward, uh, you know, back in Canton, Ohio in the 30s and the 20s, there was a, it was an underworld uh, haven. I mean, gangsters all over the place. And Phil Ward was a gangster. And he had got, how he got saved was, is he got rival gangs, you know, and somebody machine gunned uh, a bunch of them, and he got about nine forty-five caliber machine gun bullets in his, in his body. Almost died. But it was from that that he got saved. And he had matched up with an old guy up in Akron, and he worked with Tommy Thomas in the mission. Up in Akron, Ohio, was a guy by the name of Bill Denton. And he was the mission director up there. Bill, I mean, these guys, these are the guys that I got to hang out with. Bill Denton was an incredible. These guys were the last of the grandchildren of the Philadelphian preachers. Bill Denton was in World War I. He was an unsaved man, and his mama was praying for him every day and trying to get him saved. He wanted nothing to do with it. He got in a battle over there in World War I when a shell went off and, and knocked him unconscious or whatever it was. He was conscious, but he couldn't move. He was totally, totally incapacitated, couldn't move, couldn't blink, couldn't do anything. And so after the battle, they're picking up the bodies and they lay him on a stack of dead bodies. For two days, he lays on that stack of dead bodies he can't move, he can't talk, he can't look, his eyes are open, he can see, but he can't make any move. And they come the next day to pick up the bodies, to put them on a truck to bury them. And one of the guys picks him up, and what he notices is, is a tear runs out of his eye. And he found out that he was still alive. That's how he got saved. These guys were something else. God had to use radical means in saving them because they were a bunch of radical guys. But I want to tell you something. When those radical guys got saved radically, they became radical for the Lord Jesus Christ. They were brave men. Old Phil Ward pulled me aside after my message and he says, Kid, he said, he says, you got a gift. He says, you got some style. He says, now just let me give you this. And he says, and you'll build this in. And he says, God will use it. Remember three things when you preach. He says, when you preach, you preach it powerfully. When you preach, you preach it plentifully. Give them a lot. And when you preach, you preach it personally. You get right to them. You always want to let your crowd leaving wherever you preach thinking about something that you said. Well, I'll tell you, I never forgot that. That probably influenced my preaching more than anything else. Two or three years later, before he died, we were out at the... Uh, the fair out there in, in Canton, Ohio, where the church would always get a booth to win people to Christ. Me, him, Mel, and I forget who else, were walking through the midway. We took a break. We got something to eat. And we were just walking through the midway, and there was this guy who had a lady spread eagle on a big round board, and, and then he spun the board, 
he was blindfolded and then he threw knives at the woman spinning and he perfectly outlined her body with those knives and never hit her. And I'm thinking to myself, now how, in, it shows the difference between a young guy and an older guy. I'm sitting there amazed saying, how in the world did he do that? Old Phil Ward says, oh dear God, help me never to preach like that. That guy hit all around or never hit her. A lot of guys preach all around and think never hit you. See? I'll tell you, man. Cowards in the ministry. I'm telling you. Uh, you know, I think of Ian Paisley. Ian Paisley was, the, was a guy over in uh, Northern Ireland, and he was a, he was a preacher. And he, he was caught up in that Catholic-Protestant fight over there that you were told over here on NBC and ABC was a, was a, was a war. It was a religious war. It was the Catholics trying to take over the Protestants, and the Protestants saying, no way. And Ian Paisley was a great, great leader. He's, he's tra- in fact, this country wouldn't even leave him get in the country because they looked like he was a terrorist back in the day. Bob Jones University hooked up with him. They got him over here uh, and got him preaching around. And, got, and I, he actually heard, I actually heard him preach one time. Billy Bartlett, who was a great, uh, uh, Dr. Vick's grandson, who was a staunch King James Bible guy, uh, he pulled him aside one time and he says, he said, Dr. Paisley, uh, said, Pastor Paisley, uh, have you ever read Dr. Peter S. Ruckman's stuff? And he says, yes, I read it all the time. And he says, what do you think of his stand on the King James Bible? Now, here's a guy who took on the whole Irish Republican Army. Here's a guy that took on everything in Ireland for a stand for the Word of God. And when he's asked about the King James Bible and what he thinks about it, he says this, I believe he's absolutely right. I believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. But don't tell Dr. Bob I said that. Bob Jones University, because they were against it. Coward. Here's a guy that's a lion over in his own country, but when it comes to the book, he puts his tail between his legs because of somebody, what they might think about him. Cowards, man. Cowards. And that's that same fear that will keep men from doing what they need to do when they hear the truth. Hey, sometimes you have to accept failure to later embrace the victory. And if you don't understand that, you've got some lessons to learn in life. Now, in church history, my favorite hero, I think, is John Knox. John Knox was a Presbyterian preacher. Back in the day, they were biblical. And uh, he was in the reign of Bloody Mary, and Bloody Mary killed everybody. He stood in her court, ported his finger in her face, and preached hellfire and damnation to her and lived to tell the story about it. But in the Bible, it would be the Apostle Paul. It always amazes me how people like to equate themselves like your Paul when actually, when you really know Paul, we ain't nothing like Paul. Amen. I mean, uh, he was absolutely fearless, fearless in his preaching of the Word of God. One time in Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 3, it said, And Paul earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Hit him in the mouth! Because of what he said about his commitment to God. What did Paul do? Then Paul said unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and then command to be smitten contrary to the law. He put it right to him. Wow. He wasn't afraid of anybody. Ever see him deal with the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians and later on in 2 Corinthians? I mean, every chapter he spares them nothing. 
He puts it right to them. And I mean, in chapter, in chapter, in chapter two, he says, you know what? You guys are not working in the power of God, you're working in the power of man. He says in chapter three, he says, you know what? I'd like to talk to you like spiritual people, but I can't. You're a bunch of babies. Wow. Try that in your church. He says in chapter six, I speak to your shame. Is there not a wise man among you? Well, that's a rough sermon. In chapter 10 and chapter 11, he says, you guys are absolutely ignorant of the truth. And yet here you are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he made some people mad. They didn't like him. They didn't want him telling them what they needed to change. But he never feared their face. He never backed down. He always gave them the truth. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this group of people that he made mad, they come to him and they say, now who do you think you are? You know what? Before we listen to any more of your preaching... We, we have a committee here. We would like to have you present to us some letters of commendation that would tell us that you have the right to say what you're saying. So give us letters from other people that tell us that you are qualified for what you're saying to us. You know what he said? He says, you want letters of commendation? Do you? Is that what you want? Yes, that's what. Is that what you really want? Yes. Then he said, go look in the mirror because you wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for me. You wouldn't even know there was a Bible if it wasn't for me. You wouldn't even be saved if it wasn't the start of this church. You be my letters. Stuck them, boy. Stuck them. I'll tell you, he's something else. He's something else. Absolutely fearless when it came to the face of man. And brother, he let you know whether the person was in or was out. He gave out names, addresses, and telephone numbers and emails. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 through 17, Alexander the coppersmith, named him, did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works, of whom be thou ware, beware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may be laid to their charge. You know what? Paul didn't care if all men stood with him as long as God stood with him. Notwithstanding the Lord, here it is, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known that all the Gentiles might hear and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Wow, there's a guy who he gave his name for the next 2,000 years in the print. Everybody knows not only who he was, but his occupation. He said in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. He says, mark those people. You know what? I'm not going to do that. Anna put together, how would you like it? Anna put together the directory. It's got all your pictures in it with your information and somebody wants to get a hold of you. How about if I told Anna next time you do that, let's put a section in the back of all the people with their pictures you want to stay away from. Why, you get killed. But the greatest Christian that ever lived, I'm a coward when it comes to him. The greatest Christian ever lived said, mark those because if you don't, they're going to cause you problems. And he said again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, 
He said, for Demoth hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now he's, now he's attacking worldly Christians. Now, I would never do that. I'd never get in a pulpit and, and do that. I, I just, I, maybe I should. I, I just, I wouldn't. I couldn't. Uh, maybe I'm just a coward. Mark me down. Okay, put me in that category. But I'm not going to do that. But the greatest Christian ever lived did. And boy, old Paul put it right across the plate. Never one time did he not defend the gospel for what it stood for. And he didn't care who got their feelings hurt. He didn't care who got mad. To him it was, let God be true and every man a liar. Well, then it only gets better. In these verses, we see how he's dealing with the Christians in churches. Now, from on here, we see how he gives us a model how to be in the world. And boy, from Acts chapter 22 to Acts chapter 28, when he goes down to Jerusalem, it's the model of how we should stand to the world. In chapter 22 and 23, he stands before the council, and boy, he takes them on. In chapter 24, he goes before Felix, who everybody else would tremble in fear. He takes him on. In chapter 25, they take him before Festus, and everybody else would be scared to death of his power and his position. Paul just takes him on. Finally, in chapter 26, he takes him to King Agrippa. And you have there one of the greatest stories and pictures of his courage when it's, it, he's, in, he's, in, he's a prisoner. He's, he's held in, in, in jail and chains. And when you read these passages... It's hard to see who's the prisoner. Boy, he got old King Agrippa, and he says, King Agrippa, you know what I'm telling you is true. He says, you know the testimony. He says, all the things that God has done, all the things that Jesus has done, it wasn't done in a corner. You know it's true. You know it's right. You know around you. You know what old King Agrippa said? Here's a pagan Roman king. You know what he said? Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. Almost. I'm telling you, he was fearless. He wasn't afraid of anybody. Absolutely, totally fearless. Now look at the last part of verse 25. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. I'll tell you right now, there ain't no safe place on this planet. I mean, you can go down to a restaurant and somebody pull out a gun and kill you. You can drive, pull up to a stoplight and somebody will hijack your car and take your car and then just shoot you for fun. You can jog down the street on a Sunday morning and some gangbanger is going to come down and just shoot you to get initiated into his gang. There is no safe place. But it says, Whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be saved. Notice, anywhere you go, it always comes back to that relationship and that fellowship and that joy that we have or we don't have with him. And when it comes to the ministry, I'm going to tell you right now, the only safe place is in that book that God gave you. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. You know, it used to be that the three safest places for anybody to be, a child to be anyhow, uh, first of all, was the mother's womb. That's all gone now, and babies ripped out by abortions, by the millions. There was a time when the family should have been the safest place for a child growing up. It's gone. And there should have been a time when the church was the safest place for a kid to be. It's gone too. 
and yet you go to Quick Trip, pull in there to get your coffee or a donut or whatever you're going to get, and there's a sign, Quick Trip is a safe place for your children. We've taken the three things that God made safe and replaced it with Quick Trip. But I'm telling you right now, all you got left to be safe in this whole world is the book that God gave you and the principles in there. Let me tell you something. If Israel would have, in the Old Testament, put their trust and faith in what God gave them, Joshua chapter 1, uh, they'd, be a, they'd be in the land today fulfilling all that God gave them, and they'd be safe. They'd be safe from Europe. They'd be safe from the Catholic Church. They'd be safe from Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust. They'd be safe from the nations of this world but they're not safe today because they didn't do what the Word of God said. Listen, if the Jews in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would have followed what God gave them through His Son instead of crucifying Him and, and denying Him and linking up with Rome, uh, they would have been safe today. They'd have been safe from Titus in 70, OD, 70 AD when he came down and destroyed the city. They'd have been safe from the Roman Empire for the next 300 years, but they're not. Let me tell you something. If the church in the New Testament would have played it safe and stayed with the book and the world uh, and the word that God gave us uh, through the founding fathers, uh, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in today. We wouldn't be in the Laodicean church. Eh? We'd be safe. If husbands and wives trusted in the book, their marriages would be safe today. If moms and dads would have trusted uh, in, the, uh, you know, in the book, their children would be safe today. And I'm telling you, there's no safe place anywhere in this world today other than the Word of God that God's given you, and that's the only place you're safe. And if you and me will stay faithful to the Word of God as His Son through a sonship relationship and fellowship and take the position that we are His Son and, and, and build ourselves into that world, if we will grow daily let God be true, as the Bible says, and every man a liar, and take what he said, and just by courage, by courage, believe the book. By courage, obey the book. By courage, learn to rest in the book. We'll be safe, and we'll never have to fear anything or anybody except God all of our lives. And I'll leave you with that great verse, because the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. You want, your, you want to be safe. You want your family safe. You want your kids safe. You want your marriage safe. You want your everything in your life safe. Get in a book. Learn to believe it, to obey it, and to rest in it. It will get you through in a world where there's nothing that will get you through. Well, we'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Father,